0: every time you come into the gym. So you warm up, you work up to your training max. Based on that training max, that's how you calculate the percentages for the day. So you're actually creating a representation of how tired they are. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, coming off a great weekend so we, had, we wrapped up intensive 14 yesterday um kind of in a little bit of a catch-up recovery mode today but uh but feeling really really good about it um housekeeping ifast university members we have call at 1 p.m eastern standard time today um, so we'll be looking for that the link is already up on I-Fast University. Com. If you're not a member of ifsuniversity.com, please go there now and get yourself signed up so you can join us for the call at 1 p.m. All right, so digging into today's Q&A. This was with Lalo, and it came off one of the, the Coffee and Coaches conference calls. Um, and we started off talking about a, a performance-related uh, indicator in regards to whether someone is, is sort of utilizing connective tissues of, efficiently, um, in, in a vertical jump and how we would identify that. But we, we drifted into a situation where we uh, started discussing elements of fatigue and how we can monitor that. And there are certainly many ways to do that. And there are plenty of, of, of gadgets out that are available to us. That can help us with that but it oftentimes in in real time so when we're when we're actually in the gym are there ways that we can we can monitor these things and, and I would say yes yes there are um, so something as simple as creating a five point scale of how do you feel today Um, can actually be very, very useful. So the perception of fatigue can matter. So if I have an athlete that comes in and says, oh, I'm a one out of five, then we might need to reconsider um, what we had planned for training that day. And he comes in a five out of five, then then maybe um, it's time to up the game a little bit as it were. Rating of technique is an important one, and this is an ongoing thing that we use in the gym all the time as a coach, is your monitoring technique of your of your athlete. And if we start to see a technical breakdown, then we can uh, we can identify the fact that, okay, so maybe we overshot the intensity a little bit, or they're starting to accumulate fatigue, and it's time to shut it down and move on to the next activity or or end the workout uh, for today. In combination with that, we can use the athlete's perception. Of exertion, So how hard does something feel? So the big question would be after you perform a set, it's like, how hard was that? I compare that to my rating of technique, and then I make the decision as to whether we're going to move that weight up, stay the same, or, or lower it down, or once again, moving on to a new activity. Um, we could use range of motion as as a uh, KPI to monitor, and that would be something that we would do over time. So for instance, if I had a baseball pitcher that requires a certain amount of shoulder range of motion to be an effective baseball pitcher, and we're in the gym working on maximum force production, what I don't want to do is create interference for that range of motion, so I would monitor that over time. One of the cool ways to uh, uh, monitor fatigue in the gym is, is just to perform a training maximum for for the day. So let's just say that I was gonna train at a five rep maximum for that day. I'm gonna perform sets of three at five RM. And then I would accumulate volume based on how many sets I can perform of 3 at that 5RM, but I would have to train up to that 5 repetition maximum for the day. If I monitor that over time, what I can see is I can see fluctuations in the 5 repetition maximum and determine how we're going to identify uh, fatigue in in that regard. So we're always training at an optimum level so that your 5RM may fluctuate. And so we can adapt the workout to your level of fatigue in in that manner. And then as we discussed in this this Q&A with Lalo, um, we we talked about using vertical jump as as a measure of of fatigue. All we have to do is accumulate data points over time. So we'd have the athlete come in, they warm up, they perform their their vertical jump test at the beginning of the program or any other field test that that you feel is is valuable and valid at the time and we monitor that over time and we look for a change there. We can compare that to any of our other perceptions, perception of fatigue, technique, etc., and then we get an idea of, of how this athlete behaves over time. That just allows us to make better training decisions and better decisions on the fly um, during the workout itself. So this will be a good video for many people that, that maybe don't have access to some of the high-tech monitoring systems, still wanna be able to monitor their workouts effectively, um, so, again, uh, I think you'll find it valuable. So thank you, Lalo. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Have an outstanding Monday. I'll see you on the IFAS University call at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Lalo, you out for a walk, man?
1: Yes, sir. Early before it gets to 103 degrees with 99% humidity. <laughs> I'm um, here this morning. So, yeah, good morning. Um, so I have a, a basketball player um, transitioning from high school to college, but he's very recreational in his basketball. Basically, he goes to the park every day, spends two to three hours in the park playing basketball with his friends. Yep. So I've been trying to not do a lot of the low amplitude um, pyrometrics and ballistics with him for the connective tissue talk that we just had with Andrew, kind of oh, like the same thing. Yeah. But, so the frequencies and the rate of force productions and all that are, I want to, I've, I've been focused on more magnitude. I've been focused on like, let me just do the little bit of heavier weight training. Let me see how you transition from a yielding to a to overcoming action and those kind of things. And the reverse banded that we did a couple months back, I don't know if you remember, it worked really well for him to awesome. not do the double bounce on the box. Cause he uh-huh. had the double, the double tap on the box. I guess. And I don't know how much more to push him because of how much he already does um, on his own, yeah. you know? So I don't know if you can reference me to any type of research or book that can help me understand the recovery process of the connective tissue so I can have an idea of programming. How yeah. often should I program him and how much magnitude to do that based on what he does?
0: Yeah. Um, do, you, do you test him at all? Yeah, I, I, well, I
1: mean, I don't have a, a jump pad or anything, so I just take video on like how high he jumps on there, or you could, I uh, might could, take slow motion videos.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. you could do it with you could do it with chalk or a post it note, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so what you want to look at is the differential between his counter movement jump and his static, like a hold jump, and use that differential to guide your process, right? Okay. So. If he's, if he's like, if you got a big, big differential there, then he might need a little bit more bouncy, bouncy work. If it's a very, uh, I'm sorry, if there's a big differential there, he's got the bouncy part and you focus on magnitude.
1: Okay, so like take test of a penultimate step, standing still,
0: and right, then also just, like a rebound? Yeah, you, what, what you're looking, what you're you're trying to figure out is like, okay, um, if I take away if I take away the yield, how much force does he produce? If I give him the yield, how much force does he produce? So is he is he elastic? So he can store and release a lot of energy. So his counter movement jump is really really high. But he, but you have him hold for a count of four or five before he jumps, and it's not very high. Mm. Okay. Then you know he's very efficient with his connective tissues, and you need to focus on magnitude.
1: Right. Because right. I can't really, like, I, I don't know if, if he's also fatigued in any way from the amount of playing that he does.
0: Okay. So you monitor him over time. So every time you exactly. see him, warm up, do your jumps, make your comparison, and then see what happens over time. Because you all you're doing is, so all you're doing is monitoring fatigue, right? So yeah. that's, if you've ever, do you, do you ever have anybody, like, uh, on a regular basis, work up to like a training maximum for the day, kind of a thing, to to calculate percentages and things. You know what I'm like talking about. Like work
1: up that day, or through like a four week cycle.
0: Every day, kind of a thing. So, so how do you know how do you know how well somebody's recovered in the weight room? Uh oh, did I
1: lose you? Sorry, no, yeah, I'm good. I'm good.
0: Well, if if you, if you're just okay, if you're working with one of Manuel's weightlifters. Okay. Right. And let's just say you're working off percentages for the day. So you're going to do, you're going to do, you know, so many clean, so many sets of cleans at 75%. How do you know what 75% is for the day? You right. Up, well, you work up to a training maximum. Okay. Every time you come into the gym. So you warm up, you work up to your training max based on that training max. That's how you calculate the percentages for the day. So you're actually creating a representation of how tired they are. And then you monitor that over time. And so you need need data points, right, over time, but you can do the same thing with a vertical jump. So let's just say your boy comes in, he's got a 34 inch vert today, and that's your first measure. And then next time he comes in, he comes in and and he goes 35 inches. And so that means that he jumped better. So either your training is, is like stellar or he's just better recovered. Then he comes in on a Tuesday having played you know 17 hours on the blacktop yesterday and he comes in and he's a 31
2: right you
0: you just you need you need some you need some way to track so your KPI for him may be that like what is his counter movement jump and then what is his differential between the counter movement and the whole jump and that will tell you it's like where where are you in this process but you but you're going to track it over time
1: should I have some type of control also? Like tell him, hey, look, just give me one week of resting, of not going to the park so I can have a like an idea of if you have seven days of recovery, what would be your normal jump, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, good luck with that. But yeah, you can do that. <laughs> I just don't yeah, think I, I just don't think you're gonna be able to convince. You're not going to be able to convince a kid that likes to play basketball three hours a day not to play basketball for seven days. You know what I mean?
1: I'll tell him he's allowed to play it on his PlayStation for four hours, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell his mom, like, let him play on right. his PlayStation for four I, I th-
0: I think, I think hours. I think your best case is just to start tracking data points. Just, yeah, yeah. Like you decide what your KPI is going to be to, as, as a determinant of fatigue. So you can ask him, it's like, okay, on a scale from one to five, how recovered do you feel? And then you do your, you do your field test and then you track that over time. So he comes in and he goes, and you say, how tired are you? He goes, I'm a three out of five, you know, and then he has like the worst jump of the week kind of a thing. You kind of know that, okay, he feels tired and he's demonstrating the fatigue as well. Right, so right. You, there's a lot of ways that you can do this, but I would say I would say that your your just like a couple of quick tests on a regular basis will give you the information that you're looking for.
1: Got it. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate
0: Not only does this um, reduce power output, but it's going to slow me down, and so we we have to attend to this anti orientation. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, busy Tuesday. Got to dig straight into today's Q&A which is dealing with the influence of an anteriorly oriented pelvis on change of direction. And so I'm going to show you a clip that's uh, associated with with how this influences a baseball pitcher's ability to change direction as they push, push off the rubber. But we can also apply this to any athlete that has to perform some form of change direction. So if we had a soccer player, a court, court sport player of any kind, where they have to do some cutting, this is going to be a similar influence, and this is in regards to the, the influence of an anti orientation. So remember, the the way we're going to identify an anterior orientation is the entire pelvis is moving as a unit into its anterior orientation. This is to create an IR force downward into the ground, but we're also going to sacrifice external rotation ranges of motion in the hip. Um, The other byproduct of this, and this is the part that's that's probably a, a bigger influence, is that I'm going to move the center of gravity forward very, very quickly. So if we were looking at a foot, Remember, as as I get this ankle rocker element, um, as I'm pushing force down into the ground, this is my IR force into the ground, if I anteriorly orient the pelvis above the foot, what I'm going to see is I'm going to see this tibia translate very, very quickly. So what's going to happen, I'm going to move towards max P very, very quickly, and I'm going to lose my heel contact. My center of gravity is going to be moving forward really quickly over the foot. If I was a sprinter, I wouldn't be so concerned about this because they're gonna tr- try to translate themselves forward in this direction. But if I'm gonna change direction, which is perpendicular to this this orientation of the foot, what's gonna happen is, is I translating so quickly in one direction that I have to create a delay strategy by lifting up the heel, moving towards ER. So I'm gonna go upwards first. I'm literally gonna be lifting my center of gravity up to slow down in that forward direction before I change direction. And then we get this little hop off of the uh the forefoot as i'm sort of pivoting off off of that forefoot so not only does this um, reduce power output but it's going to slow me down and so we we have to attend to this anti-orientation so from a strategy standpoint there's any number of ways that we're going to be able to postly orient this pelvis but the one thing that we want to make sure is is that we're not using this anterior orientation as a substitution for our internal rotation, so we start to think about strategies. In that regard, um, what we may wanna to start to do um, to capture some true internal rotation or middle propulsion is, is something that's gonna slow this tibia down. So we could use a right foot forward split stance um, if, if this is a right-sided issue, right foot forward split stance, sort of a paloff press, static holds, we can do the same thing if, if they can access internal rotation, then we can do the same thing in half kneeling. We have our uh, offset split squat that allows us to capture that internal rotation bias just by, by biasing the load um, in, our, in our favor. And then to slow the, the tibia down, this is where we would use, say a front foot elevated split squat. So we elevate the foot on a box that slows the tibia translation down. So all of these strategies are in play. So you can see that that this anti orientation can be a pretty significant influence and and so then we have to be really, really careful with our selections in regards to strength training that if we have people performing these these bilateral symmetrical high force activities and we're promoting this anti orientation, it may negatively influence the outcomes, especially when we're looking at changes of direction. So program carefully. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Don't forget to put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday. We're going to cut away to the discussion of change of direction with a baseball pitcher, and then I will see you all on Wednesday.
3: All right, so I've been festering on noodling on this the last couple weeks, um, and finally had an epiphany the other night that which kept me up till like three in the morning as i was sweet thinking about
0: it. i love those <laughs>
3: so um, the best, yeah so feel free to like if i'm totally off my base here let me know but i'm uh-huh. hoping i'm on the right direction
0: okay
3: so it has to do with basically direction of force so
2: uh-huh.
3: um there's three pictures that i've been working with that have we have a force plate mound and uh-huh. um they're very jumpy, meaning they kind of lose connection with the mound. Does that make sense?
0: Like at at the rubber, they 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 sort of like lighten and then or, or are you talking um, about at least so, so oh.
3: as they as they push off their rear leg yeah and, and go onto their front leg, we should see like very little um space between that. Right. they want to see like their you know their back foot pushing and then their front foot accepting.
0: Yeah. And they're, right they're going like bump
3: bump yeah. kind of yes. thing. Yep. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha.
3: So, you know, the pitching coach has been trying a couple of things here and there and, and hasn't been so successful. Um, I've been working with these players a little bit here and there, so kind of have an idea of, of what's going on, but want to see if this makes sense as to why they're uh, jumping.
0: Do you get a mixture of righties and lefties or, or are they all righties? All righties. Okay. Yeah. Makes all righties. Sense. okay all, all narrow. Yep. Yep. Um,
3: yep. hip ERs in the like fifties for, mo- yep. for most of them. Um, yep. is probably ranging from like five to 20. Yep. Um, What's interesting is I was going back through my notes, and there was this pattern of um, I would see them after a day of like deadlifting, whether it be trap bar, or RDL, low backs would be tight, they would lose their ERs. So telling me that they're getting obviously anterior orientation as they get into that hinge position. Yep. So my thought was as they're as they're going into their load and they get into the hinge, just as they're getting into like max P they're dumping the pelvis forward. So they're getting right an anterior orientation so that the force now is more of like a vertical force, which means that to go this way, I kind of have to come up and then out yep. versus if I have more relative motions and I can get the sacrum to nutate a little bit better, Boom. maybe I open more doors to be able to push horizontally. Did I there get it? Go.
0: There you go. Okay, Yay. yes, yes, yes. Okay, so here's, so so think about this. Okay, so um, they, so, uh, when 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 okay by by pitching terminology <clears throat> so when they're loading that hip they have to be able to move towards nutation or or they will make a compensatory uh uh movement or strategy right right yeah so think about <clears throat> they're anteriorly orienting so, um so when when you're looking at the the force plate analysis are you are you only getting like up and downward pressures
3: no we get we get Y axis, which is like yep. um toward toward the plate. Yeah. Then we get uh, x-axis, which is forward and back. Okay. And then z axis, which do you
0: see? Back. do you see a transition in the forward and back prior to the reduction of ground contact on the right foot?
3: I will look at that. I'll have to okay. look back at the graph. I would look at
0: that very, very closely because that's going to give you how much anterior translation you're actually looking at. Okay. Because chances are, if they're translating anteriorly at all, there's no way that they can get the the medial ground contacts, and and so so what they'll have to do is they'll they'll have to shift their entire center of gravity, and then they they hop off of that foot towards the towards the lead foot instead of instead of sitting down into it where they can actually push into the ground, right they're gonna they're gonna have to hop off of it because they're translating towards third base not towards home plate right right so and and it could be really small because you're only talking about you know the length of your of your foot so if the tibia is translating forward in in some way shape or form that is not associated with the the normal pronation they're gonna get like a four foot load they're gonna hop off of that foot and and because they'll have to because Again, they're translating towards third base and they want to go towards home. Right. So they have to kind of, you know, create the little little push off. It's almost like it's it's almost like um, um if you were coming out of a, a really sharp cut, but you didn't have a heel.
3: Right. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. No, but you're on you, like like your your representation in my in my estimation is is absolutely correct. It's like they don't have they don't have the normal mutation capabilities, and that's why they're not capturing that that right foot position. So they have to hop off of it.
3: Awesome.
0: Very cool. Thanks. Very cool. That's awesome. All this technology in baseball, just you throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. Sometimes it rains, right? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. There you go. That's the quote. All right. That was Bull Durham. Anybody that has not seen Bull Durham, it is now on your list of things to do for the weekend. Okay. The most important baseball movie ever made. Just don't compare yourself to somebody that has been through the process and is in a, in a, a much deeper um, state of evolution as it were in, in their professional development. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Well, today's Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday. And 6 a.m. tomorrow, we have the Coffee and Coaches Conference call as usual. Great groups of people, great questions, total fun. I will continue to do these as long as they remain fun. I think we're in the high 60s for for, um, almost consecutive weeks. Had a couple of vacations in there, but but in general, we're doing this thing every week. We'll continue to do so as long as there's interest. So please join us. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay. Um, Today's Q&A. So so this came out of uh, an email and uh, it was two students actually kind of asking the same question and they want to know about, okay, what was your philosophy coming out of school? Um, How did you evolve, uh, you know, what you do? And because they're a little frustrated, I think, as far as the the process that they're going through right now and I think it's pretty standard um, operating procedure for, for most students, especially when they Experience a little bit of the overwhelm of the information that's available, and all the viewpoints and the opinions, and they're just not sure um, which way to go. Truth be told, I didn't have a philosophy coming out of school because I was an idiot, and um, then you just get smarter over time. So experience matters, failures matter. The thing that you don't want to do as a student, um, especially when you're first starting in in any. Um, Adventure, if you will, um, and and your your evolution is don't compare yourself to somebody that has been through the process and is in a, in a, a much deeper um, state of evolution as it were in, in their professional development, um, you, you can't compare yourself. You can only compare yourself to yourself. And so look where you've already been, look where you're headed, and then move forward. And then you can, again, always look back and make the comparison and say, okay, I've made progress in this manner, but don't compare yourself to other people. That's, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, so this, today's clip actually comes from a call that we did, I think back in January, where, where Nikki and Borbala both asked, asked some questions in, in this regard. It's like, you know, what was your philosophy? How did you do this? What are, what are the, the most important things to keep you moving forward? So hopefully this is a useful call for a lot of students Um, And then maybe some professionals that that might be early in their career that that get a little frustrated as well. So I think it'll be helpful. Um, If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget to include your question in the email. That would be really, really helpful. If you do that, everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. I got a question, Bill. I got an answer.
3: What was your philosophy when you first started, and how has it changed? In the last <laughs> days?
0: Oh, Nikki, you don't want to go there.
3: Why? Let's do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you know how old I am? Yes. You know how many? Do you know many evolutions that I've been through? Yeah, let's hear it oh, it was horrible. It was miserable. I was, I was an idiot. I was, I, I would not send, I would not send my worst enemy to, to Bill Hartman year one. <laughs> and so, so again, it's like, again, I, I, I don't, I don't think about that stuff too much to be honest with you, Nikki. Cause I don't like, I don't like where I was when I started, you know, it was kind of embarrassing. And, um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's, just, it's just been an evolution. Like the last 10 years have been really, really good. I've just been able to ask better questions because I, I've had enough reps and, and horrible, miserable failures, you know? I think I was, a, I was, I was young when I came out of school. So, so the, the, the concept of failure was, was um, something that I was afraid of rather. And now it's like, it's just another part of the puzzle. So if you want to go like, like hardcore end game philosophy, that's probably the biggest thing is like, I, I'm just not afraid to, to, to fail anymore. Like, so I did not have a philosophy when I came out of school. I was lost. I was, I was a puppy. I was a, I was a, I had an oatmeal for a brain.
3: That brings me to my next question.
0: <laughs> okay. It's the Nikki show. Go ahead.
3: Somebody has to have a show today. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, You mentioned that you felt lost after a thing. Have you ever felt lost during your career path? And what helped you like find your spot or your place in your career where you didn't feel lost anymore?
0: So I quit for a year. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually quit for you. I did. I did something else. Um, because I thought it was going to be a big thing and it turned out to be absolutely nothing. Um, so coming back from that, um, that, that was an, an important, it was important for me to do that. I actually recognize the fact that um, there's only a few things that I'm good at, right? It's like, I always talk to people, it's like, emphasize your strengths because your weaknesses will always be weaknesses. And so, so that, was a, that was a year of discovery for me where I, I did, I found out, it's like, hey, you know what? I was really good at the other thing. And that's where I should spend my time. And then it it that's where the the the, the drive started to come from. And and then again, I, my curiosity coming back from that year, um, my, it was exceptionally high. And so I just started asking a lot of questions and then looking for the answers. And then um, there's this thing that that is is I think it's gaining some popularity now called the internet. And, and there was a lot of more information that was available to me. So, so back in the old days, what we used to do is we used to have to read books and you actually had to go to the library where they had the journals to get articles. And then you had a card, like a credit card that you would put into the the machine that would actually make a photocopy. And you used to have to photocopy the articles and take them home with you instead of downloading the PDF in about two seconds. And so that's, I, I would spend, I would go to the, there, there's a, a medical school downtown. I would spend hours on the weekends um, at the, at the medical school library downloading articles. Right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, like I said, there was just that moment of recognition. It's like, yeah, I'd probably just need to stick with what I'm good at and then just develop that as hard as I possibly can. And I had, a, I had a couple of people that, that, gave me a little bit of guidance early on from, from PT school, actually. And I, I got to work with one of my mentors for a couple of years.
3: Yeah. Is, do you think it's normal to feel lost at some point in your career?
0: I don't know. I think it's going to be an individual thing. I think some people are just really, really self-aware. And, and that's the, one of the greatest of superpowers. Um, and it just, like some of us find it early some, I, like I'm a late bloomer, I'm, I'm gonna be 55 in May. So I'm, I'm a really late bloomer as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that the, if, if I would have had the opportunity to be exposed to the amount of information that is available now, I think it would be a, probably a different evolution. But I'm really happy about the way that it turned out because um, I'm, I'm like ridiculously happy. Um, where I am in life in general, like it took me forever to get here, but I'm really happy to be here. And so again, I think you just kind of, everybody finds their own way, but, but feeling lost is not something to, to worry about as long as you remain curious and as long as you continue to ask questions and as long as you continue to seek more information, um, and not just information, but, but to gain the experience that goes with it.
3: I have, um, one more deeper questions on the Bill Hartman show this morning.
0: (laughs) Can we we just talk about infrastructure angles and stuff? (laughs) Uh, That's why everybody's here. No, go ahead.
3: Okay. um, So on that note, and like kind of like on the tail end of all of those, what do you think that personally, like inside of you, not outside of your environment or not necessarily the learning, but you personally on the inside made you successful or made you who you are now? Like, I know that, like, I think like you, like you put out some of the answers, but what do you think that's like the three, like most successful traits in you? Like, yeah. is it,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, well, number one, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm happy. I don't know that I'm successful. Okay, I'm happy, which is more important. Um, having a curiosity about what you do is, is, is one of the most powerful things because it drives you to, to continue to, to progress, right? I still have questions. I still look for answers, right? And, um, and so I think that that's probably a number one like the minute you stop being curious, you don't ask questions anymore. And then you make an assumption that you know enough and then there's no growth. And and one of my greatest fears is that I'm actually an old man sitting in a nursing home, sitting in a wheelchair and all this is being imagined, right? Because that's where I don't wanna be. (laughs) I always wanna be invested and excited about what I do. And so I think the curiosity is, is the number one thing because it does continue to push you like when you're tired, but you still have to answer that one question because it's just burning up inside of you to, to have an answer. And and so so that I, I don't know if I would have a top three, to be honest with you, because I just think that the, the, the curiosity drives the excitement, the excitement drives the motivation. And then then the discovery is the reward. So, you know, it's just people like to talk about, like they know something about the brain and they, they say, oh, it's your dopamine reward system. It's like, okay, so let's just say that, that that is what's going on. It's like every time you discover something new or something of value or something that kind of makes sense and you do get that that excitement, you know, like, like you know, getting, the, the, getting that perfect, the, the perfect red velvet cake with the extra uh, 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 buttercream icing on it, you know, what I'm talking about, you know, and then you put the, you put the, your favorite, uh, 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 caramel flavored ice cream on top of it. Does everybody do that? Or is it just me? Um, so, so, you know, it's that moment where it's just like, this is perfect and you feel that and then you get driven again. So, but without the curiosity, I don't think, I don't think there's a cascade like that. And so, so I if you're not, if you're not curious about this and, and, um, then you're not going to do well because the struggle is there for a reason to keep the challenge in front of you, which is really, really important. But if you're not curious and then you struggle, now you hate yourself and you hate every moment and you can't live like that. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and It is perfect. Go ahead, Zach. Um,
4: So my question is gonna be in regards to like interpretations of traditional external rotation measure of the shoulder um, Mm -hmm. for contact with like a right-handed baseball pitcher. Gotcha. Um, I'm just trying to think it through because assuming it's a high level athlete, they're gonna have some degree, most likely of like, um, compensatory or compressive strategies that's gonna potentially magnify the measure. Um, whether that be like the turn to the right or they're tilting back on the table. Um, But then assuming they've been throwing for a while, they're also gonna have some degree of like retroversion um, that's changed what their theoretical norm is. Um, So I'm trying to figure out, I guess my question would be, how do you start to approach the idea of figuring out like what their norm would be? um, Because like the iterations from the shoulder to the hip um, I wouldn't expect to see like a gross magnification at the hip on that side um, mm-hmm. relative to what the magnification might be solely due to the retroversion on that side. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, like, if I'm trying to restore some degree of external rotation, um, what am I shooting for? And you're probably, I guess part of that is you're probably not shooting for what their norm is because you don't want to bring them all the way back if they're an athlete. But I guess it's probably a good starting point to know where they should be.
0: Okay. Awesome. How many times you've measured this person?
4: Um, I'm, I don't have a specific person in mind. I have a couple of pictures right now that I'm treating for like medial elbow pain.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Um, okay.
0: how, many, how many times have you measured them?
4: A good amount every time they come in.
0: <laughs> okay. So how many measures do you have? How many, uh, data, po- how many data points do you have for, com- for comparison purposes?
4: Probably 10 at this point.
0: Okay. and and you've got more than one pitcher correct yes okay are they the same no okay so if you had to say that let's get two pitchers in mind all right okay and you can see them both one standing on the right one standing on the left okay the guy on the on the left does he need more er than the other guy or less
4: depends you don't,
0: you don't know no 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 well okay i'm just saying if, if you're going to compare the two guys you got 10 measures to play with here so so you've measured them more than once right and so you kind of know them a little bit mm-hmm. the point is is that you don't know you have no idea until you start to measure and until they start to perform right now if you're working with painful conditions then it would behoove you to maximize relative motions so you can alleviate the the issue right first and foremost when it comes to performing um and as they start to return to to, to throwing you need to continue to measure them as they as they ramp their their throwing back up to determine what would be optimal right so i'll have i'll have a pitcher that can come in and um, if we don't get him to like 135 degrees on the table, then we know that we don't have his, his peak level of performance. Another guy would come in. And if I, ha- if I saw that on the table, I'd probably flip out a little bit and I'd go, ugh, we got like a crazy orientation. And he's going to come in and he's going to say, I get that right lat pain every time I throw. And the reason that I know that is because I've worked with them over an extended period of time. And so I get to know these people. And then that's what determines what the, the um, KPI is that we're chasing. So the unfortunate answer is you need more data points to determine your, your answer.
4: So, so it's really not, although it'd be nice to know like what their external rotation might be without any compressive strategies, it may not really be that important because you're just figuring out how they're gonna respond with different amounts of external rotation.
0: That is correct, sir. That is absolutely correct. Welcome to the complexity of working with an athlete because the way that they do things um, is not average, right? We've talked about this. It's like, you can't treat them like average. You, their norm is their norm, not the norm, okay? And so so I don't know. If, if, I, have a, if I have a baseball pitcher that's six foot seven and I have another guy that is six foot two and one is biased more towards a wide and one is biased more towards a narrow, should I expect them to produce the the output of pitching the same way? You can't do it. You just can't do it. You have to appreciate the fact that, that their mechanics will be idiosyncratic. Therefore, their ranges of motion will be idiosyncratic. So how much how much retroversion do you want?
4: However, however much I then. don't
0: know. What allows them to, to do what they do for a living kind of a thing, right? And so that's, so we measure, we monitor, we we make small measurable changes that we determine would be in a favorable direction under the circumstance, but there's no guarantee you'll be right. So that's what we have to monitor.
4: That makes sense. Um, yeah,
0: so, so the right answer is what's the right answer? you know it. what it, well, it, but it is it is it'd be really nice to say well you need 120 degrees. you know it, it'd be great to cookbook this thing right yeah. and the minute you the minute you try to do that you're going to fail
4: yeah to to take the like the performance so yeah, i guess you kind of talked about like a rehab example versus a performance example where like rehab it might be bring them all the way back relative motions and then layer on the compressive strategies as much as you can versus like performance. You don't want to take it all away. So you're trying to bring them back slowly and figure out like just how much can you take away.
0: And there the, you go. That's brilliant. That was a brilliant statement.
4: Thank you. Um, for, the, for the performance part of that question um, in terms of like actually executing that in terms of bringing them back slowly, um, I guess, how are you, trying to figure out how to word this. Are you using like early propulsive? Or I guess, so I guess this would be a wide in this case, If I'm going to try to bring them back. Like if they're towards the end game, I'm trying to bring them back first. Okay. Are you using early propulsive biased exercises or activities, but just trying to like not dose it with as much volume, or are you trying to spend more time in like a middle propulsive activity where like the gradient relative to where they are might be, to moving them backwards, but like it's not like a true delay activity, I guess. Does that make sense?
0: So, so you wanna know how close to get them to middle basically? It's like, do I need to take them way back into an early or is it on the early side of middle?
4: Well, I, I guess the, to that question would be, it depends, like it's just, you don't know until you do it, but how, how do you go about bringing someone back like more slowly or not as far versus like bringing them back more quickly? And further with like with a given exercise.
0: Okay, so when you so this is all process. So all we're talking about here is process. You understand. You understand the mechanics of 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 what you're going to create potentially, and then so it's like okay, how far do they move when you when you intervene? And uh, you know, and that's that's the question that you're asking, right? So there, so you don't know. You do something. And then you say, okay, that's in the favorable direction, I will do a little bit more of that. And then I will monitor that change, and make sure it's still trending in the right direction. Right. And then you're communicating with them if if we're talking about symptom relief and things like that. um, That's, that's going to be something that you would monitor as well and that might give you the answer that you're looking for as to like how much do I need to bring you back so you know, somebody re- reports a reduction of symptoms, but it, but not resolution, then you probably did something that's favorable in regards to creating adaptability. Maybe you didn't create enough, maybe you didn't create enough in the right direction. So, you know, in, in those weird cases where you do something with an intention, like let's just say you were trying to create ER space and, and um, maybe you moved them a little bit in that direction, but you picked up a ton of IR, and, and they go, oh, that feels better, but you, but in your head, you're going, okay, but I, that wasn't what I was really trying to do. Right. So you created more adaptability. So you expanded the, this, the excursion that they can move through, but you didn't access the starting position into ER that you wanted. Yep. Right. So again, that's symptom relief versus the performance aspect of it, that, that was your original intention. You still have to, you still have to test Right. So it's always intervention. Right. And then reassess and then intervention and reassess intervention, reassess. Because because, again, the, the, the questions that you're asking, you're asking are great questions, but they are resolved in process. Yeah, because your predictive capabilities are slim.
4: Yeah, I, I guess I I'm recognizing that. But it's also trying to figure out, like from a conceptual standpoint, like trying to get to a point of where like my first decision is better. Um, <laughs> like, it's still it's still like a, a test retest, obviously, and even is
0: always. As, as but see, as, see, so here, I, I understand. I'm not picking in here, brother. Okay, uh, the 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 biggest challenge that you have is is not wanting. I mean, I know you want to know the answer, but what it is it's getting comfortable with the unpredictability and the uncertainty is where is where the issue lies because if you can do that and you just understand that this is process and 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 always be you know forthcoming and honest with your with your patient or client and just say that we're going to do this and then we're going to test and we're going to see we're going to see what the answer is because you're not you're not like everybody else we have to treat you like you, right? Even though they, they are human and they have certain constraints and such, we can't, like I said, we can't compare them to average and we have to compare them to themselves. Yeah. And that's the hard, that's the really hard part, right? That's why everybody likes that, you know, they, they like the numbers and then they like straight planes and then they like, you know, average measures and, and things like that because there's comfort in that but it's also limiting in your outcomes.
4: Yep. Um, one more clarification point, if you don't mind, I just wanna ask sure. questions like a slightly different way to maybe get yeah. a different answer. Um, if I'm trying to create a delay on a certain side, does nope. the activity that I choose have to have like a, or a true early propulsive bias or does the activity just have to be earlier relative to where they are in space?
0: Okay, question. You're, you're moving through space. You're walking through space and you land, you're, you're in middle P on your right foot. Is that right foot moving faster than the other side?
4: Middle P on the right foot. Um,
0: so, so your weight is on your right foot and you're, you're stepping. Okay. You're in middle P you're like dead, dead middle P is, is the foot on the ground moving faster forward than the other side. No. Okay. So is that a delay? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So d- remember, delay is is not there, there is a delay in early for sure, right? Because that's where you start to initiate slowing down that side with internal rotation. But if I'm still applying internal rotation into the ground, I'm certainly not moving at peak velocity now, am I? Right. Right. So that side's still slowing down. So so there there you can create the delay in in all. Grounded activities, right? Gotcha. Thank you. Outcomes are just outcomes, they're just telling you what happened under the circumstance. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neurocoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. We got a very busy Friday. We're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Um, this uh, was a discussion with Alex from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conference call. And we were talking about um, the delay strategy that's associated with early and what happens when you don't have access to that because you lack relative motion of the pelvis. So real quick, let's just review this. So when we talk about the early representation, if I was to be stepping forward, say with, with my, my left leg as such, and the medial heel comes down, first metatarsal comes down, and I have a sacrum that should be moving backwards, backwards on the ilium into counter-nutation, and that's an ER representation of the pelvis. That represents the fact that we do have relative motion available to us. But what if we have the superficial compressive strategies in play, we don't have that relative motion available to us? Now, We still have to create a delay strategy because I have to slow that side down. So as I make contact with the ground, that side of my body is going to have to slow down to allow the other side to advance as I'm stepping forward. So the question is, is where is this going to show up? How is it gonna measure? Are there any other ways that we can identify the compensatory strategy? And so yes, there is. And so this is where our complex movements really come into play and allows us to make comparisons and to identify where these compensatory strategies occur. I'll give you a hint, it's in a squat, but uh, I'm going to let that um, show up in the discussion as we go through this. And If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, uh, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. Please include your question in the email, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. Uh, Podcast will be up on Sunday. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe there. And I will see you next week.
2: Uh, so I have a question on posterior pelvic orientations uh-huh. and, and how they arise, um, whether it's something that happened immediately or if other, um, have, or something else has to occur in order for that to happen later. My suspicion is potentially that if you lose like an early propulsive position, you then have to compensate with the pelvis in order to get the ER space. Um, but I was interested to hear what you thought.
0: Okay, so so think about this for a sec. Um, if I don't have relative motion and I am walking across the ground, am I still having to create a delay strategy? For sure. Okay, so if the pelvis is locked into one piece, and let's let's make this really like crazy simple. So I have an ear representation because I'm, I'm a narrow ISA person, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm walking through space, but I don't have relative motion in the pelvis. Where would, where would it most likely show up that I would be able to create a delay strategy? I, most can't, do likely. I can't do it in the pelvis, right? Where, 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 would I, where would it be easier for me to do that, huh?
2: Lumbar spine.
0: Yeah, there you go, right? So, so puff out the lumbar spine in a delay strategy for me right? Create the parachute just above the pelvis. And if I move the spine in, into that expanded representation, what, where do you think the pelvis is going to go? Cause it's attached to it. It's going out with it. Well, so the top of the pelvis is going to, is going to, from a relative position standpoint, the top of the pelvis would be more posterior than the bottom part of the pelvis under that circumstance. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. And so where would you see this represented in a really easy way to visualize it. Do you know?
2: Uh, I'm not sure I get the question.
0: Where would you see posterior orientation of a pelvis um, visually represented in a complex activity? Where would be an easy like, place post- to? Like a squat? Yeah, that's exactly right. You'll yeah. see it in a squat. You'll see it in a squat. And so when th- that's one of the values of having people do complex movements is that is that they, that's their tell. It's like, so if I see somebody that posteriorly orients a pelvis and I see the, the expansion in, the, in the, the lumbar area as they descend into the squat, guess what strategy they're most likely going to use when they mm-hmm. don't have full relative motions in the pelvis as they're walking? Can you see it? Mm-hmm. And then... If you know that, and let's just say you threw them up on a table and you're doing table tests, what would you expect the external rotation in the hip to look like under those circumstances?
2: It would be poor. It would be what? It, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a lot.
0: Uh, where? Let's be, let's be really- oh, oh, okay. You would have a
2: lot of hip but you get a lot of compensation. In the yeah, ER, there, there like, you ir, go. Thank you. A ER, lot of ER, no IR.
0: There, there you go. That's exactly right. So, so you see somebody, they, they squat, you see the, the expansion in the lumbar area, and you're going, uh-oh, this is not going to be somebody that has a lot of um, typical uh, early propulsive capabilities. So their early propulsion has moved up. It moved up into the lumbar spine. There's their delay strategy.
2: So, so you, you get people who walk in and look blatantly posterior or posteriorly oriented, and you get people who walk in and look blatantly anteriorly oriented and I, I feel like you you can get the same table measures in regards to er and ir in that circumstance yes um
0: yes you can because they move
2: right are they are they still using that same lumbar spine delay strategy when they walk in that circumstance just at, at relatively different positions of the spine
0: well so Think about how many movable segments of the spine you got to play with here, but um, it will not be the same because, okay, so if I had a, a, a narrow versus a wide ISA representation mm-hmm. right, and let's just say you threw them down on the table, they roll all over the table as you're measuring them. And so the, the measurements appear to be the same, right? They're still turning, Right. Um, it just might not be to the same degree nor the same place. Mm-hmm. So if if somebody, and we'll just use an extreme example, if somebody decides that they're going to um, herniate L4-5 on the left side as their delay strategy. Mm-hmm that might be somebody that doesn't have the ability to create the turn. So they're so far forward that their turn comes from there. Whereas you have somebody that might not be as far forward that does still have that turning capability as you move them through space. Because remember you're, you're displacing the load of the, of the limbs that will cause some of these turns to take place. Mm-hmm. Right. Remember we were talking about the difference between a straight leg raise and then traditional, Hip flexion, er, ir measures, and because of the the position that you're in, this is where you start to get the, the, the pelvic turning, uh, the pelvis turning as you uh, as you perform the measures. So it's not the same strategy, mm-hmm. per se.
2: Yeah. Okay. So is the solution then to to go get some er space first? And then how do you, does that just create a positional change of the lumbar spine and you don't have to worry about the posture, so to speak?
0: Did you see the air quotes, Chris? Alex just used air quotes.
2: Does that save me from using the word posture?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's This is protection. <laughs> um, maybe. Maybe. Um, so if you get, if you recapture relative motions in the pelvis, so that's what you're saying. When, when you say recapture ER space, you're talking about recapturing relative motions in the pelvis. So let's just say we got somebody that, that, is, that is oriented. The pelvis orientation is an external rotation representation with compression. So they don't have relative motions. So they're using a lumbar spine. Uh, compensatory strategy as their delay. So there's there's our starting conditions. Okay, you do some form of activity, you restore relative motions in the pelvis. Chances are, assuming no other constraint changes are in play, chances are you will also normalize the behavior of the of the lumbar spine in its association with the uh, uh, the pelvis. Okay, if you don't. Then you have another issue to address. But it, it, like I said, typically, if you're able to capture relative motions, you're going to get you're going to get the the associated behavior change in the lumbar spine as well. But but you have all sorts of like if you don't get that change, like if you don't recapture relative motion in in the in the pelvis. Um, Now you say, well, I might need to influence this thing from the lumbar spine to get the relative motions to behave appropriately, right? So now you got to start thinking of of a position where I can move the spine from its delay strategy to a late representation of propulsion to create a turn in the lumbar spine and then bring the pelvis along with it. have you ever seen anybody manipulate a lumbar spine and the patient gets up and they go, Oh, that feels so much better. Yeah. There you go. You're thinking.
2: Yeah. I'm processing. Um, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. But you would, you'd still have to go then cemented with some other like if you don't go access some er space after that at the pelvis you'll probably just bring them straight back into the same position so it's just symptomatic relief
0: absolutely absolutely it is right so you get a temporary you get the temporary expansion of adaptability through the through the manually applied technique but i didn't recapture enough relative motion systemically right to get the as they say the changes to stick
2: Mm
0: -hmm. right? So you do get temporary relief. So you're on the right track as far as the intention is concerned, which is adaptability, but did you recapture the adaptability, but this is why you intervene and then re retest. So you can tell what happened, right? Just feeling better is not the, the, um, full resolution in, in some cases. Right. again all you do is expand adaptability if I expand adaptability but it goes in the wrong direction they might feel better but did I really provide the, a, a solution if full relative motion is the is the goal right remember your you're, outcomes are just outcomes they're just telling you what happened under the circumstance you, you, you try to take the um, the emotion out of it, so to speak, where you get to pat yourself on the back for being successful and just understand it's like, okay, I didn't get relative motion in the pelvis, but maybe I expanded it in the lumbar spine. Well, then how would you know? Well, that's why you measure your, your measures. And just like you said, you get a lot of ER and OIR, you know, you got the spinal compensatory strategy still in play. Gotcha.
2: Okay. Very cool. Thank you.